chapter 5, and we will start reading in verse 1. Verse 1 kind of kind of works as a transition from the end of chapter 4 to the beginning of, of chapter 5. And so we talked about it last week, but I think that it flows as well into this week. So I'm going to start with verse 1 in chapter 5 and read through verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. But I have this confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray this prayer together as we open up God's word. Be up on the screen so you'll read the underlined portions together with me. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Help us now to hear and obey what you say to us today. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. If you grew up or been around church, you know that churches have all sorts of warnings that they give to people. Depending on your contact with these churches, depending on your traditions that you've come from, or even if you haven't had any church tradition at all, you've, you've likely heard warnings from different churches. You might have heard warnings about the end times. So if there's something going on in national Israel, you might have heard the, you know, like the red alarm guys going off. Like, hey, something crazy is going on, so there's end time stuff. You might have heard those kind of warnings, like, get ready, it's, it's happening. Or you might have heard warnings about gifts of the Spirit and... and Either side of that, to stay away from them, or, or live in them, or all those kinds of warnings are out there as well. But here's some of the serious warnings that I, the most serious warnings I remember growing up in church. And this isn't maybe the church's fault; it might just be my selective hearing. But the most serious warnings I heard growing up in church were, were warnings about immorality, sex before marriage. That was a big warning. Drugs, that kind of lifestyle, what it leads into. That was a big warning. Now what I don't remember, and once again, not blaming the church, what I don't remember is a warning like a warning that Paul gives here in Galatians chapter 5. A warning that says that if you think you're justified by Jesus and anything else, the law, your own morality, uh, circumcision, your own performance, financial giving, if you think that you're justified by Jesus and those things, or just by those things, then he says you're severed from Christ. Now that's a serious warning. There's extreme danger, Paul is adding on to all the extreme danger that he's said so far, but there's extreme danger with adding to the gospel. So much so that we need to know and hear this warning. Because the reality is is that beliefs have consequences. All sorts of consequences, right? That beliefs work their way into our actions. And so there's, there's consequences not only for what we believe, but also how that makes us live. But Paul brings up here that that our beliefs have consequences for the future. That there's future judgment attached to some of our beliefs. And Paul spells 
some of those out here. For, for the message of circumcision, he spells out some consequences. If you want to go down that line, here are some consequences for that. For even the teachers of the message of circumcision, there's consequences for that. And he spells some of those. But there's consequences for receiving both the message and the teachers. And so Paul begins... In verse 2, by kind of exerting all of his personal and apostolic and pastoral influence over them because he knows that the consequences are large. He knows that he is the one who came and preached the gospel to them and he doesn't want them to stray from them, from that. He knows that he was warmly received, that people actually believed the gospel. They heard with faith and believed and received the Spirit. He knows that he was the one who came and told them the truth. And now because he did that, he is being rejected in some ways. And he did this all with the gospel that he says was not from man. And I am an apostle not from man, but from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so attempting with all of that influence that he's given them to spare them of eternal consequences and the warnings that he gives here, he tells them, verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now this is Christ, who was raised from the dead, who is equal in glory and honor with the Father, who is worthy of eternal glory and praise. And that's just what he said about Him in the intro. So what advantage then... Does one who is in Christ have? What advantage does Christ give to anyone or those who believe? Well, He gives us salvation. In Him, He sets us free. He's talked a lot about freedom. He sets us free from our slavery to the law, from our slavery to sin. And He sets us free to then know and love God. He brings us justification. This is a word that we've seen over and over again in the book of Galatians. That Paul says that through Christ you are justified. You are made right in God's sight. You can be reconciled and have peace with God because of Jesus' work. You don't have justification outside of Jesus. There's only an advantage for being in Christ to be justified. Outside of that there is no advantage. In Him you have redemption. Because He came and took the curse of the law upon Himself that He might redeem us. Pay our penalty for our sin. Release us from the power of that sin so that we might be reconciled to God. Through Jesus we have what we call adoption. That now Jesus is our elder brother and God truly is our father. We're in the family. We belong. We're all the way in. There is no other level to attain. And that's only through Jesus that we have that adoption. That we can be called sons, not slaves. Through Jesus we have resurrection. That we say we have died and that we have risen to walk in newness of life. That Christ now lives in us. These are all the advantages. And this is just a, a tiny sampling. Like Time would fail us if we were to go into all the wonders of the glory and the grace of Christ and the advantages that He gives to those who would trust in Him. All of these are for the Galatians, but none of them are only for the Galatians. These are for those who believe. These are for those who put their faith in Jesus. And so if you are a believer, if you have trusted in Christ, then He is your salvation. He is your redemption. He is your justification. Through Him you do have adoption. Through Him you do have resurrection. That's all for believers. And so in other words, believers, we have all that we will ever need in Jesus. We don't need to add anything to that. This means that, that nothing in any sort of way needs to be added. If we have Christ, we have everything. And so submitting again to circumcision as a legal requirement to further affirm that we belong before the Lord, to submit to the law, saying that it's necessary to, to be accepted before God, is to be off and outside those advantages. 
Now, he doesn't mean that Jesus is of no advantage if you just accept physical circumcision. But he's saying if you add on any sort of spiritual or saving value to that circumcision, then Jesus is of no advantage to you. He is not your righteousness, if that is the case. If you are attaching your circumcision to some sense of righteousness, acceptance, standing before God, then you have no advantage in Christ. Now, I think this is amazing. Because he doesn't say, if you accept witchcraft, then Christ is of no advantage to you. He doesn't say, if you accept Satanism, then Christ is of no advantage to you. I'm assuming those are true of those two. But if you accept circumcision, circumcision, circumcision was a requirement for God's people in the Old Testament, and, and now they're saying, You need to have circumcision and Jesus. So so it's not something that's immoral. It's not something that's crazy to do. Might even be some physical advantages to this. But he says, if you have this, then Christ is of no advantage to you. Why? Verse 3, Paul tells us that I testify again, that to every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. The problem with accepting circumcision, he says, now if you're going to keep part of it, you're not going to have to keep the whole thing. And and that creates quite a problem for us because we're we're what we call sinners. We're slaves to sin and the law. In other words, we have this sinful nature that's that's always away from the Lord and not to the Lord unless God comes and changes it. And so if we are to keep all of the law, then we are under a curse. We are under a burden. We are slaves because we can't do it. It's impossible for sinners. If, If we're obligated to keep it all, then all of us are going to fail. And all of us have and do fail in that. Whoever tries to keep the law as a means of justification is under the curse of the law. James says kind of the opposite. He says the same thing. He says if you you fail at one point, you're going to fail at all. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 10, he says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. That's a quote of Deuteronomy. He's given them the scripture. He says, you want to obey the law? Then you've got to obey all the law. That's what Deuteronomy says. You're trying to pick and choose some Old Testament passages that you want to apply to the people of God. He says, if you want to do that, let's look at Deuteronomy. And if you do that, you're cursed. Because you can't obey the law. And so the same reasons that would obligate one to accept circumcision also obligate a person to accept the whole law. You can't just pick and choose. The the law is this expressed will of God. God is saying in the law, here's who I am, here's what I want done, here's my will for your life, and so I'm going to make it plain to you. And any who sin against the law aren't just sinning against a certain command, they're sinning against the very expressed will of God. It's to be guilty of it all. If you're guilty of one, you're guilty of all. You're sinning against the will of God. And so you can't pick and choose which one to obey and which one not to. If you obey one for justification, you need to obey them all for justification. And that creates us with a problem because we can't. We can't obey them all. And so if you fail to obey one, then you're guilty of all of them, which leads to Paul's next conclusion that he says in verse 4, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Severed from Jesus. There's no adding to or subtracting, no adding or subtracting from the gospel that doesn't sever one from Christ. Any addition... Any subtraction to the gospel severs from Jesus. There's not an equation that works that out any other way. Paul says in chapter 2 verse 21 that he says, If justification were through the law, 
And Christ died for no purpose. It's an offense to the cross of Christ to say that I can be justified in any sort of any other way. That I can add to my justification by circumcision or by law keeping or by whatever. That is justification by the law is anti-gospel. It's saying that Jesus' sacrificial death isn't needed. That I have all the justification and righteousness so I can get on my own. I can do it by myself. And if one believes this, then he says that you're severed from Christ, you're fallen from grace. Friends, don't miss the warning here. That our justification is through Jesus alone or it's not at all. We're either justified in Christ or we're under a curse. Tim Keller says it this way, Christ will do everything for you or nothing. You cannot combine merits and grace. For all the warnings that the church gives, this one needs more attention. You can't combine grace and morality. Grace and your Bible reading plan ticked off to show how spiritual you are. Grace and your financial giving that shows that your heart is really after the Lord. If you're adding any of those on for your justification, they said you're severed from Christ, fallen from grace. Faith alone in Jesus is what justifies, not anything added to it. And believing in Jesus and attempting to add to or accomplish salvation on our own, he says, that, that, that's easy. That means you've fallen from grace. Now, don't think that Paul is saying that the Galatians have gone this far, that they've actually fallen from grace. He writes in chapter 1, we see this, to the churches, to believers of these churches in Galatians. In other words, he's writing this warning to believers. The, the sense of these verbs, which verbs are often important, that you are severed from Christ and that you have fallen away from grace. The sense of these verbs, which is, is primarily determined by, by the context, is that these are what we call universal or, or timeless truths. So if you believe these things, then you're severed from Christ. If you believe this that by the law, then you have fallen away from grace. I think this fits with, with the context that you look in, in chapter 5, verse 2, where the clear, the, the clear wording is there and the same sense is there, that if you accept circumcision, then Christ is of no advantage to you. And the same kind of flow is here. Like, if you accept this, then you are, or you will be, severed from Christ and fallen away from grace. And so, Paul's warnings and exhortations against, or against these things, against his opponents, and, and toward these believers, don't fit... If they have already fallen away from grace. So it makes more sense to take them as a, if you believe these things, then this is what will happen to you. That if you seek justification through the law outside of Jesus, then you will be severed and you will have abandoned grace. Now believers, how are we supposed to take this? How are we supposed to take this warning? How does, how does this warning fit with the promises of God? I mean, once we're in Christ, aren't we supposed to be secure? Haven't we even been affirmed over and over again in the book of Galatians that you, once you trust in Jesus, you're justified? That you're fully in? That you have all that you need? That you fully belong? That you've been received? So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to take this? It's been a while since I've talked about Lord of the Rings, so you're welcome. There's a scene in the movies in the book as well, so good for them for tying those together. It's the scene of Galadriel's mirror. I have a picture just to kind of jog your memories. This is an elf queen of sorts. She lives in the woods. They go to visit her on their way to destroy the ring. Here we have Frodo and Sam with Lady Galadriel. And she has a mirror that she invites them to look into. They wonder what they're going to see. She says, I don't know. Even the best may not be able to tell. It might be future. It might be past. We, we don't know. Like, just look into it if you want to. Frodo looks.
looks into the mirror. I don't know if you remember this. Frodo looks into the mirror, and he sees all sorts of things in the book, but, it, but especially in the movie, they, they really highlight the darkness and the doom should he fail to destroy the ring. So he sees darkness, slavery, all sorts of turmoil because of his lack of destroying the ring. Now in this mirror, I think that what the the author is getting across is is that this is a real possible future. That if you fail in your quest, here is what's going to happen. That it will be this bad. But you also see why it's being used and why he even sees that and what it does for Frodo. Because what it does for him is that it scares him, yes, but it spurs him on. It gives him even greater resolve. I don't want that to happen and so I have to keep going even though I'm scared and I don't want to. It strengthens his resolve. Now believers, we don't want to soften this warning at all. I do not want to explain it away. What I want you to do is hear it and heed it. That the deadly edge of this warning is pointed at us believers. This will happen if. Let this have its intended effect. And let it be part of the means that God uses to strengthen our resolve to go forward faithfully. Strengthen our trust in Him, knowing that it's only in Jesus alone that we're moving forward. That I don't want that end, and so I want to do and trust Jesus now. Further our resolve. That way when we're tempted to think that my Bible reading plan when I wake up, I don't know if you're like this, but I think that I can achieve salvation every morning. Alright, so I'm going to read, or I'm going to pray, I'm going to get God's favor. And when I'm tempted to do that, I need to think about some of these warnings that say, if you do that, you're actually severed from Christ. And say, no, I'm not going to do that, Jesus is enough. And then out of my justification, then I can move forward. For believers, our performance, our merit, our law keeping, they aren't our hope. Jesus is. This is why Paul goes on to say in verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. After this tough warning that Paul gives in verse 4, seems like he speaks some sort of confidence. And he says some things that are good. He says God is at work in believers. He says, we know this is true, that those who are in Jesus now are declared righteous. Now our righteousness before God is actually going to be a future thing. It's actually going to happen later on. But it's declared to us right now. And so believers are those who are confident in what Christ has done. And who look forward to when that final gavel is going to fall. And we will be declared righteous even though we're sinners. Because we're depending not upon our own work, but upon the work of Jesus. And so Jesus says, or Paul says, that believers aren't those who attain their own righteousness by law keeping, by circumcision, by their financial giving, or whatever it is. But they, they are the ones who cling to Jesus for righteousness now and at the end. And the Holy Spirit is the one that transforms this person, any person, from one who is self-justifying, self-reliant, to someone who has a trusting heart looking forward to the deliverance that Jesus will bring. That's important because he says in verse 6, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. A key phrase in, in Paul, and especially here, is this, In Christ Jesus. That is, no one pleases the Lord on their own. 
No one seeks after Him. No one does what is good and righteous. Everyone has fallen away. And so apart from Christ, we don't do these things. But there is one with whom, Jesus, or with whom God is well pleased. That is Jesus, His Son. And so the most important thing in life is not about your performance and your actions and your law-keeping and the things that you do, your own merits. It's about being found in Jesus. It's about your relationship to Him. Because in Him, then Jesus, then God can look at you and, and be well pleased. Then you can actually do things in the right way. The relation to Jesus and being found in Him is the most important thing in anybody's life because it's His work and His righteousness on which we rely. And if that's true, then all boasting, not just some, all boasting is excluded. What does He say about circumcision here? The claim would have been that because I'm circumcised, I'm more part of the people of God. Or I'm one of those that God chose in the Old Testament. And so clearly you Gentiles don't know it. You need to be circumcised too. So you can really be part of the people of God. There's all sorts of boasting around. And he says circumcision is nothing. Nothing. Boasting is excluded here. You didn't just add anything to it. It's nothing. And so here's the flip side, right? For the Gentiles or, or even others. They can say, oh, see, circumcision is nothing. And I knew that because I had great spiritual insight. And so I abstained from circumcision. So now uncircumcision. Am I right? Like we're the spiritual ones. We're the people who really God loves and cares about, right? Clearly he says that's nothing to you. Your circumcision, that's nothing. If you think you're awesome because you're uncircumcised, that's nothing. Only what? What does he tell us? It's only faith working through love. That's something. So what is something is faith working through love. Now Paul has solidly planted the idea of justification by faith. Hopefully that's clear for us. He's planted that down deep as a doctrine to believe in. But justification by faith is more than a doctrine. It has to be more than a doctrine. That is to say that faith isn't just in our head, it's in our feet. And what I mean by that is that it moves us. We, we actually act out of our faith. It penetrates our hearts and it moves outward to our actions or it isn't faith. Paul wholeheartedly, I think, agrees with James and says that kind of faith that doesn't have works, that's not actually a real faith. That's a false kind of faith. Paul says faith ought to be working through love. The faith that justifies is the faith that works outwardly through love. That's justification by faith. Now we have to be careful. Because Paul has been warning us with some serious and strong language about circumcision. Law-keeping. In other words, he's, he's been warning about outward and even moral actions. So what are we supposed to think about this? Because he seems to be calling us to outward actions. He said, don't just, not just in your head. You don't just agree with justification by faith. But it, it needs to connect to your actions and the way you're working out your life. And so what's the difference? I mean, hopefully you guys all know. It's, it's a big difference, but it's clear, right? It's this word that we've seen all through the book of Galatians. It's faith. Faith is working through love. Before, their actions were adding to their justification. And now, he's saying that your actions are actually stemming from, coming out of your justification. If you've seen or read the, you've seen the series Band of Brothers, it was done a while back, read the book. on Some men in World War II, Easy Company. They were airborne soldiers, and there was one who, in the, in the books and in the movies, is really interesting. His name is Lieutenant Spears. He's this really kind of brass, uh, go-get-em guy, and he's really kind of hard with the men. 
And there's a scene in the movies where there's some scared privates hiding in their foxholes and, and kind of getting a little antsy. And he has some advice for them. And here's his advice. He says that the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. When you hear that, it sounds a little strange. Right? We just like, is it inevitable? We're going to die, so we might as well just accept it and then go about our business? But in a sense, this is how believers are to be. That is that we must accept that we're already dead. That we have already died. Paul says, crucified in Christ. And when we've accepted the fact that we've already died, that we're already dead in Christ Jesus, then we'll actually be able to function rightly. Because Galatians 2.20 says that we're dead to sin. Look in 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We are dead to self. And we're alive in Jesus. So now, dead people, they they don't have anything to prove. They don't have anything to gain. There's not something left out there for them. They don't work for acceptance. They're dead. And only from death to self and resurrection in Christ will we see faith working through love. Only when we've accepted that we have died and we have risen with Christ... That faith will start working through love. Too many of us haven't accepted that we're already dead. And we still seek our own justification. Too many of you haven't heard the message. Or haven't believed the message that you need to die. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. And walk in newness of life. Too many of us haven't accepted that we are raised. That we're not still the old man. And that we're meant to walk in newness of life by the power of Jesus. And so the Galatians, it seemed, had been transformed by that very message. Somewhere along the line, they had turned. Paul's trying to call them back. Something had happened. And he says this in verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. Paul really zeroes in on his opponents here. He says that they were hindering you from obeying what? The truth. The truth of the gospel. In other words, they're they're doing something that's keeping you from truth. And he says that their persuasion, it's not from God. So he's going after them now. Now maybe in a long run, which he kind of seems to bring up that, if you're running well, you're going well, things are going good. Maybe in a long run, just a little hindering won't affect the outcome tremendously. I don't know, I'm not a runner. Maybe a little hindering does affect the outcome greatly. Either way, Paul doesn't want to leave us in doubt about what he's saying, because he goes on in verse 9 to say, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so even if I think in my mind of, of someone who doesn't run, that a little hindering shouldn't affect the outcome in a long marathon, here he's really clear that a little hindering, a little change to the truth, a little addition here and there, a little subtraction here and there, a little persuasion, he says that can work through everything. That a little leaven will go through the whole lump. That goes through everything. Small faults, they have this tendency to be great big things later on. They just keep growing. They spread. They're like leaven working through the dough. They're dangerous. And yet, after saying this, Paul expresses confidence. Look at verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord 
that you will take no other view. That, that seems to be a positive spin on things, right? I, people, you're around people, right? We're sinful, we're broken. You just leave people alone, and there's all sorts of chaos. There, there's all sorts of depravity being displayed, right? It, that's not a hard one. And, and, and not only that, but we know of the Galatians and the churches of Galatia, that not only do we have sinful people, but we have these false teachers coming in. And they're coming in stirring things up and causing things to be hindered, and they're, they're pushing things off of the truth. And so now we've got all sorts of problems, and yet Paul has confidence. And so what's going on? The Galatians being troubled and are sinful on their own, Paul has confidence that they will respond rightly, believe rightly, live rightly. Why? What's his confidence in? His confidence isn't rooted in the shallow soil of man. His confidence is rooted in the deep soil of God. He says, I have confidence in the Lord. If God began a good work in them, He will say this later, but He knows it now. If God began a good work in you, then I'm sure that He'll be faithful to to bring it to completion. But it's not resting on their faithfulness or their great work or their great insight. No, it's resting on the Lord. If He started it, I know God's faithful. He's going to complete it. He's going to do the work in them that's necessary to bring it to completion. That's where He places His confidence. That's where we should place our confidence. He'll use things like warnings, right? Soft teaching that doesn't have an edge like Paul seems to do in all of his warnings. He'll use all of those things, but it's God that's going to bring it to completion. He's going to use lots of means, but the confidence is in the Lord. This is why we can go out, preach the gospel, and die and be forgotten. Our confidence isn't in us. Now, I don't know what's going to happen in that gospel. This is sinful people. They probably reject stuff and they'll hate us for it. My confidence is in the Lord. He tells us to do it. We want to do it. He wants us to do it and die and be forgotten. I'm fine with that too. My confidence is in the Lord. But he's confident, he's confident also in the consequences for these troublemakers. The end of verse 10, he says this. The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. He's confident that the Lord's going to bring retribution on those who oppose Him. I think that this troublemaker, he's going to face the consequences for his actions for bringing this message. Whoever it is, if it's one, if it's many, they're going to face the consequences for preaching a message of... Jesus and, whatever that and is. But Paul is also probably being accused of something when he says these kind of things to the Galatians and to, by his opponents. His opponents would probably say, see, Paul's inconsistent. We know Paul. We've heard about Paul's teaching. Paul sometimes preaches circumcision and even requires it. I mean, think about how he talks to the Jews. Look at Timothy. Timothy was a Jew. He had some Jewish descent. Paul had him circumcised. You remember this story in the book of Acts 16. Right? So, so where Paul's inconsistent. We're the actual teachers. You need to listen to us. So they played off of Paul's practice of, of Jewish Christians where circumcision was okay to Paul because he was sure that it wasn't tied to their justification. It wasn't tied to their righteousness. And they're saying, see, Paul's inconsistent. You need to listen to what he teaches and his practice. Now, obviously, this was an unfair rendering of Paul and his view. And so Paul pushes back into that because they're reading him wrongly. He says, oh, well, if that's the case, if I, if I brother, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? If you think I'm, I'm inconsistent, why, why am I still being persecuted? People that preach a message that others like normally don't get persecuted. He says, but me, why, why am I still being persecuted? Everywhere Paul goes, he preaches 
Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He preaches this message of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And he receives constant heat. Everywhere he goes. There's not one crowd that likes him. He doesn't have an in crowd. He says, everywhere I go, like I'm suffering from this and that. I have dangers from all places. I can't even sleep. Persecution all over the place. Why? Because justification by faith in a crucified and risen Savior is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. It's offensive to the religious and to the irreligious that there's enemies on every side of the gospel. It offends everyone. It's just like equal opportunity offender. right? It doesn't care who you are. It'll offend you. You're a sinner. And you need a, a crucified Savior. That's offensive. The message of the cross is offensive. It has bloody imagery. It talks of sin and punishment. That's an offensive message. There's no culture that that's not offensive to. It's universally offensive. But the cross confronts everybody, including us, with the reality that Jesus' death isn't just something done for us. It is that. It is done for us, right? We, we trust in that. That Jesus died for us. That He cares about us. But likely, and hopefully, that's a message you've heard from early on. Jesus died for you. And it's even flattering. Yes, Jesus died for me. But the cross isn't just something done for us. It is also, done some, it is also something done by us. So where before we like to emphasize those last two words, for us, Jesus died for us. Here's where we've got to flip it around and say, Jesus died. Now that's offensive. Because here's what's going on, is that your sin is that bad that Jesus, God in the flesh, had to die. Doesn't sound like flattery at all. Our sin is so bad that you have to turn from it to this bloody Savior for forgiveness, for reconciliation, for adoption as sons. Preach that gospel consistently, and the apostles say, as they knew in their own bodies, but they say, expect persecution. Paul's even using it here. He talks about it with the Corinthians, like, this is my badge, that I'm actually doing what I said I would do, that I'm actually being a true apostle. Here he's using it saying, like, I'm, I'm preaching a consistent message of justification by faith alone, or else I wouldn't be persecuted like this. And yet everywhere I go, I suffer. He suffered greatly for the gospel and for the people, for the Galatians too. He suffered that they would hear the right message, that justification by faith is the only message. And that's why in verse 12, he kind of comes down hard and he says, I wish that those... I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. You gotta love Paul. Alright? You gotta love that guy. I sent out a message earlier in the week, just kind of throwing it out there to the pastors. Hey, verse 12, any application you can see there? Got nothing. Got nothing. Now, he is using a little bit of wordplay there, that there's a, a group of teachers that are, are preaching kind of a, a message of, of cutting. And he says that, I wish they would cut as well. Try to keep that as G-rated as possible. <laughs> and maybe even this warning here in verse 12 isn't actually as extreme as the curses that he calls down in, in chapter 1, right? He says, if anyone's preaching another message, I want them to be a curse, eternally damned. But still pretty strong wish for these troublemakers. Emasculate themselves. And the application for us is... And I don't even know. But you can see how serious Paul is about the gospel. 
But there is a serious warning for how you add or subtract or mess around with that message of justification by faith. So much so that he's willing to say these types of things to people. Not a lot of pastors are preaching that. I wonder if our love for the gospel message is as large as Paul's. Are are we as concerned about that as the people of God, as, as Paul is, that he would say these kind of things? And we don't want to miss the warning for ourselves that there's consequences for teachers of that message. There are consequences for receiving that message. But we ought to be the people like Paul who say, no, we're not going to stand this message. I think as we look through these 12 verses that it's, it's, it's somewhat hard to tell Paul's tone. Often he's pretty telling. He's being sarcastic. He's angry. I, I'm, I'm not sure where he's at. Is he angry? Is he mournful? Is he hostile? Is he pleading with them? Is he both serious and sarcastic? Is verse 12 kind of a sarcastic? Like, oh, masculine themselves. But what's clear is that while his tone may be in question, his heart isn't. That he launches into these real consequences for the message of circumcision, and for the teachers of circumcision, warning the Galatians and even warning these teachers because he would spare them of those consequences if they would just trust in His message. That is, Paul's heart is not just for the Galatians here, that is for all readers. He would spare us of the consequences of receiving a message of Jesus and something else. That He would spare those who would teach a message of Jesus and something else. He would spare us of those consequences by saying, you can be justified by Jesus. Put your faith in Him. And I think that this is a faithful following of His Lord and Savior Jesus who would spare us of the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that we might be redeemed out from the slavery and penalty for our sin. And so Paul seems to be faithful and consistent with that. Amen. And we can be too. In fact, Jesus gives us a sacred symbol that the people of God be reminded that we're justified by faith alone. That we get to together do. Encouraging one another that we're taking the bread is a reminder that we're trusting in Jesus alone. That we don't bring anything to this table. That that Jesus is the one who provided and laid it out for us and said, you can come and have a part if you would just repent of your sins and trust in me. We get to remember that. What a sacred thing. And so brothers... Sisters, if you're believers, come and tear off a piece of the bread. Remember Jesus' body that was broken for you. Dip it in the juice. Remember Jesus' blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Be reminded that you're united to Christ, crucified in Him, risen to walk in newness of life because of the work that Jesus has done. And celebrate that fact and rejoice in your hearts. If you're not a believer, we would say, repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. Don't take this meal. It's not for you. We want to prepare you to take it if you would just turn and put your trust in Jesus, but it's not for you this time. If you want to know what that's like, what it means to repent, what it means to have faith in Jesus, please find a believer and ask them and start walking through the Bible. But don't take this meal. Believers, come and be reminded of what Jesus has done on your behalf. We'll pray, and then we're in no hurry. Come when you're ready, reflect, think, rejoice, and then come and be reminded of what Jesus has done. Let's pray together. Father, where else should we go? You have given us the words of eternal life. May our hearts not desire any other message.
Would you tie us to the message of justification by faith? And not just in our heads, but in our hearts and our actions, the way we live. That the things that we do wouldn't just be for justification, they would be from our justification. Oh, we mix those up so often. Help us. But God, I pray that the message of justification will do what it was intended to do. It will actually justify. It will bring in those who don't know you. And so God, I pray that for even unbelievers in our hearing now. That the message of justification would draw them in. And that they would lay down their pleading, their case. And instead would take up the case of Christ that says, You have failed, but I did it for you if you would trust in me. God, as we get up and take this sacred family meal, would we be encouraged by one another's faith? That we're saying that we don't bring anything but we trust in Jesus to give us righteousness now. And that in the end, when He comes, as we're declaring in this meal that He's going to come again, that we will be declared righteous. And God, strengthen your saints with this meal. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.